Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing for Wednesday, November 10th, 2021. We are live streaming from the traditional and ancestral territory of many peoples. We are grateful to live and work in Alberta, a province on the traditional territory of 48 different First Nations and the unceded homeland of the Métis Nation. Today's conversation is being shared in ASL. To ensure access to completely accurate information, closed captioning will be uploaded after the live stream is complete. This conversation for the public is being shared live on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. The Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing is a regular panel of doctors and experts. We will endeavour to bring you timely, accurate updates on the COVID-19 situation in Alberta and take questions from the public and the media. The views of our panellists are their own and do not represent any institutions they may be affiliated with. We have collectively gathered here as concerned Albertans, attempting to ensure that everyone in the province has access to as much information concerning COVID-19 in Alberta as possible. As always, we will start things off with an update on the COVID-19 situation in our province. Thank you, everyone, for joining us again today. Dr. Vipond has returned from COP26, and so we'll be sharing his analysis for COVID-19 in Alberta, as well as some comparative insights into the current situation in the UK and our current situation here at home, after which we will be joined by some additional experts to look at the primary care situation in Alberta. Dr. Vipond, welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me back, Michelle. Um, yeah, it feels like a long, uh, it's been three weeks since I've run the numbers, which is a long time to be away. And I was super excited when I left because everything was trending in the right direction. And then um, just over the weekend, everything started to fall apart. So I want to delve into that. Um, and strangely enough, the numbers that normally are released at 3.30 happen to be being released late today. Um, I suspect it's just totally a coincidence. They just happen to release them late on the days that we're doing the, the analysis. But uh, I do have a little bit of insight uh, because Courtney Thierot uh, has, has released his numbers. Um, so he's obviously got a news release that he can share. I'm, I'm going to kind of pick and choose between yesterday's releases and some of the stuff that I can pull out of Courtney's information that I, I'm feeling confident about so that we can put together kind of amalgam of, of what's actually happening on the ground. And I don't have any slides today because, um, yeah, normally I would I would do make the slides off of the uh, the numbers released by the government. And since I don't have those, then um, that, that's where we're at. So let's start with cases per day. And I'm going to go with Monday's numbers because Mondays are the ones that uh, I, I have a good beat on. So Mondays were 433. And it's important to recognize that's a large increase from last Monday's, so a 32% increase. Um, and of the last four days, so Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, three of those days had increases from the previous week. And this is the first time we've seen this. This is a seems to be a real uptick that's uh, that's occurring. Um, and, and that's really concerning. And I say that that's real because we've also started to see some positivity increases as well. So positivity yesterday, 5.13%. Uh, sorry, so that's, this is for Monday. 5.13% versus uh, last Monday's 4.52%. And we do have today's number confirmed at 5.1% versus last week, 4.91%. So both of these things are trending in the wrong direction. 
we also saw a little uptick in the hospitalizations yesterday, plus two to 480. That's for the inpatients. Um, and then today, it looks like we have a drop of um, minus 21 to 459. And of course, these tend to be revised uh, over time. But still, it seems that we still overall have trending hospitalizations down and trending ICUs down. And that's totally to be expected, because even if we have a, a start to increase the daily cases and the positivity now, we won't see that reflected in hospitalizations and ICUs for about another 10 days to two weeks. Um, ICUs, uh, this is for yesterday. So again, current information down 5 to 123. We're finally getting a hold of ICUs. Um, I don't have the peds and mitts for today, but yesterday we had two new inpatient admissions, a baby and a toddler. Yesterday's deaths, eight, and today's five. Um, I think the thing I really want to point out with the numbers recently is that the although we've had plateauing of pretty much all the age groups, um, the biggest uptick is it back in in school kids in that five to eleven range of kids that can't yet get uh, vaccinated uh, yet are still going into schools and we know we're not doing enough for schools we know that we still don't have good airborne precautions we know our our, bo our boards of education are are not allowing uh, filtration devices to be used even though we there's good evidence from the CDC and ASHRAE that these are really important tools to use to decrease the viral load in in those spaces. Um, and uh, and and we still don't have universal masking. You're still, especially in rural areas, there's no um, uh, mandate to be wearing masks when you're sitting at your desk facing forward because this is an airborne disease. That it seems absolutely crazy. And of course, uh, there's still no masking in the K to threes uh, in in our in our in our province. Uh, that's different for various school boards. We know the big cities have implemented that. So that's the number analysis. Um, I just wanted to take a couple moments to talk a, a little bit about um, my travels. Uh, this was really a, a tough decision for me to make to go to, to, to the UK for COP26 um, because I knew the situation there was so much worse than it is in, in our province. Um, basically, in July, when we decided we were going to ignore the... Uh, the fact that uh, COVID was a, a deadly transmissible disease and start calling it endemic and stop our testing, tracing and isolation. The UK did the exact same thing. They just weren't quite as explicit about it. And uh, this, I, I think we can really credit Pop AB and the advocacy that we did for getting a lot of that reversed and actually leading to this downward trend in our numbers that we've seen over the last two months. Um, and the UK didn't really have that concerted advocacy efforts, um, or if they did, it was certainly ignored. So when I landed in England, I was shocked. Nobody's wearing masks. Um, it's probably 20 to 30%, even on the subway, uh, and the subway or like on the, the, the UK, the London transit, it's actually mandated to wear a mask within those spaces, but still only 20 to 30% compliance. I even saw staff not wearing masks. So this is really a trend. Um, from what I understand from the, my friends and, and colleagues that are there, that um, the government has really decided to make this a political thing. They call them face diapers, which is uh, a ridiculous uh, 
And because of that, they've really had plateauing to rising um, case numbers. And uh, we see that in their in their deaths that are slowly rising, um, their hospitalizations, which have plateaued and, and their cases per day, which have plateaued. Um, they're really losing. Uh, it was a bit better in Scotland where masks were um, much more used. But still, I saw a lot of noncompliance. I saw a lot of people in um, shared spaces like bars, um, cocktail parties, um, not wearing masks. Uh, and, and so Scotland, despite being about the same size um, as, as Alberta, has cases around 2,000 uh, per day, whereas you know, we're at around 450 to 500. So big, big difference in the numbers there. Um, the one thing that they're doing better than us is using rapid tests. And I think we've really, truly underused these here. Uh, they're, they're really good tools, especially in specific situations. I could see them being used in school outbreaks to minimize the amount of kids that have to go home and, and uh, quarantine because of an exposure to, uh, to a classmate with COVID. Um, I could see them being used for, for gatherings. Say you wanted to have some, needed to have some kind of an uh, in-person event. If you, if you use these serially for the few days before that event, you could really decrease the, the amount of, of, of risk, especially if everybody attending that event was double vaccinated. So yeah, kudos to them for the rapid tests. I think that's great, but it's obviously they're, they're reliance solely on rapid tests and, um, and vaccines isn't enough. And because of that, they are failing. So what are we doing better? Well, we have the vaccine passport. I think that's huge. Um, we have the mask mandate. I think that's huge. I don't see the vaccine passport being um, gotten rid of at any time in the near future, as long as we have COVID floating around. Um, but I'm really worried about the uh, provincial or municipal governments um, pulling back on the mask mandate. Kudos to the Edmonton City Council yesterday for continuing their mask mandate. Um, and that's kind of a backup plan in case the, the government, the provincial government decides to, to get rid of theirs. Um, and, uh, and Calgary's extended theirs to 28 days. Uh, I think of active cases below 100, but I'm hoping they'll extend that as well. We really need to have this at least through January. And certainly as we're seeing the numbers plateau or even rising, um, I think that would be um, something that uh, that we should consider doing indefinitely. It's it's just it's not a face diaper. It's just it's just another piece of uh, safety equipment that can be really comfortable and uh, not get in the way and and allow us to to go out and about safely. Um, the last thing I want to say is what what are both countries doing wrong? We still have not acknowledged airborne transmission until we thoroughly acknowledge this, educate our population, educate our workers uh, about this scenario, and also start to implement mitigation measures like better ventilation, better uh, filtration. Um, I'm, I'm afraid we're not going to win. So uh, just we'll continue to beat that drum that uh, that uh, acknowledgement of airborne transmission is going to be key to, to, to winning this. Um, I think that's all I have to say. Michelle, do you have any questions or does anybody in the public or or media have any questions about any of that
I actually have a question. Um, I watched you struggle with the decision to go over for COP26, even knowing that it had been planned for you and your daughter for so very long. What were some of the steps that you took knowing that the situation was so much more dire there, even than our direness here, to make yourself and your not so tiny, tiny human um, feel as protected as you could? Yeah, there's probably three things that we did that were essential. Uh, uh, we wore uh, well-fitting respirator masks. Uh, my daughter has an N99 from Vitacore. I wear an N95 from 3M. Um, and we wore those at all times in all shared spaces, except for one scenario. We shared spaces. I, I visited some friends in London. And when we were in Scotland, we had a shared accommodation as well. And in those spaces, we just rapid tested everybody uh, on arrival and we all tested negative. And then in, in Scotland, we repeated that test for everybody every day or every two days so that we knew there was no asymptomatic spreaders within that space. Um, and then the last thing was we, we never ate indoors. Um, you know, we would do takeout, eat on the streets, bring it home and eat it in our space. We never did any in-person uh, restaurants. We did go to one cocktail party where there's a lot of non-mask um, non wearers uh, drinking their wine. We just didn't take off our masks and we didn't, we didn't uh, drink any wine at, at that space. So those were kind of the, the, the big three things that we did. And so when you were over there, were, was purchasing of rapid tests like easily available? We, you touched a little bit on how we haven't been using the, utilizing them here. Now, we didn't buy any because when we brought some over, you can buy some. We bought ours through Levitt Safety. They're like $10 each, but you have to buy like a big bulk of 25. Um, that's here. And we brought those over thinking that we wouldn't be able to, you know, we wouldn't know how to find them. But in the UK, they're everywhere. Every single household gets, I believe it's seven tests per week. Um, and they're really um, suggested to be using those twice weekly. So a household of four Um the um, uh, would be using those twice, twice a week. And then, so when we went to cop, they would be handing them out like candy at the door. Uh, we got a, like an equivalent of 14 per person per day uh, when we were at cop. So my daughter and I came home with like literally in Canadian terms, hundreds of dollars worth of, of rapid tests. Uh, we brought back to Canada. Um, it's, they're just ubiquitous there. So, Yeah. Definitely something that we can hope for in the future going forward here, especially as we move into the holiday season. Um, yeah. I know we've heard from a lot of people who are interested in where they can purchase them. Um, you'd mentioned Love It, is that correct? L-E-V-I-T-T -T is the one that we've been going. There may be other sites. And I think Mass for Canada is going to put together a um, page on their web. Uh, I don't know if to, oh, perfect. Cool. You froze for me. Um, I froze for you me. froze for me. For so me, I don't know if you that. froze for everybody else, but I believe that you were trying to say that you thought Masks for Canada was going to be putting together a page on their website of locations where folks who had yeah. the means to do so could purchase rapid tests for their families and themselves. Yeah. And we know the government is sitting on millions of them in, in warehouses. So it's a bit confusing as to what they're doing with that. So we know that they're using them in some... Um, outbreak scenarios in uh, in schools, and I think they're using them in long-term care outbreaks as well. But as far as I know, they're not being released to the general public. 
Hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. Um, thank you so very much for all of that. And thank you for sharing your experience of your travels. I must admit, you look refreshed. <laughs> I was pretty tired. Which when I <laughs> is lovely <laughs> um, to see. Um, so yeah, as folks are going into that holiday season and they are weighing the pros and cons of travel, I think that three of the things that I will take away from what you just shared with us is being really aware of what's happening in the place that you are going to. Um, that way you do have a complete picture of how bad things are in the place you're contemplating going, as well as that deep understanding of airborne transmission, um, wearing really high quality masks whenever you are around others. And in most other jurisdictions other than Western Canada, because I know we could do it if we were in Nova Scotia, rapid test, rapid test, rapid test. Mm -hmm. um, I would love to bring up the rest of our panel. Um, I am very excited um, to have so many fantastic um, Pop AB Coalition members and one who is away from their station at the moment. So I will bring them up in a second. Oh, maybe they're reappearing. They managed to make it on a little bit early. Oh, great. Wonderful, wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, and so today we are going to be looking at... Oh, I hear noises in the background. I can't help it. I'm a distractible human today, apparently. Um, today, we are going to be looking at primary care in Alberta. Um, I think most Albertans know that even pre the pandemic, um, we were hitting a crisis point as it came to access to family and primary care. Rural areas have been hit exceptionally hard, but even in our large urban centers, Clinics are missing so many doctors, um, not even looking at the private section of things in private clinics. I just quickly went on to the AHS doctor hiring website right before we went live today, and I saw over 70 posts for general practitioners and family doctors throughout the province. One of them was dating back to 2017. That was still an active post with a start date of as soon as humanly possible. Um, so as we begin to unpack sort of that pre-COVID family doctor situation, during COVID family doctor situation, um, right now situation, and what the future could like look like going forward, I am going to ask all of these wonderful coalition members to introduce themselves. That way you know what perspective they are speaking from, starting with you, Dr. Keegan. Hi, my name is David Keegan. I'm an academic family doctor. I'm based here in Calgary. Part of my work includes long-term care. I've been in Alberta since 2008. Before that, I worked on the coast of Newfoundland in a town called Placentia and in London, Ontario. Hi, I'm Nija Bakshi. I'm an internal medicine physician, and most of you that have watched POP know me from my inpatient stints at the Royal Alex and what I do in the COVID unit. But today I'm actually going to be speaking from the lens of an outpatient specialist who works in a clinic alongside five wonderful family physicians and talking about uh, what we're seeing as specialists and primary care. Hi, I'm Dr. Mukhtar Malizadi. I'm uh, a work uh, in a uh, in a family clinic in Calgary. Uh, I'm working in Calgary since 2012. And before that, I was working in Sudbury, Ontario.
Sandra, can you hear me? Oh, we may have had yeah, a freeze. Yeah, I can. Of... Sorry, I, I oh, just perfect. Uh, wasn't too sure he was done. Oh, excellent. Yes, yes, yes. If you could introduce yourself, that would be great. Yeah, can you hear me now? Yes, I can. Sandra Azokar, I'm the uh, executive director. Okay. Um, I'm Sandra Azokar, the executive director of Friends of Medicare, um, an organization that has been for the past 40 years been promoting the protection and expansion of our public health care. Um, and I'm speaking today from a lens of, uh, of what we hear on a daily basis with uh, from Albertans who have issues accessing primary care and what the impact of that is on, on our health care when we start talking about upstream uh, issues um, and costs uh, that are related to not having that uh, that access to uh, the the front end services. Thank you all so very much for being with us today. Um, I would love to start us off, like I mentioned, in the before time. So before the global pandemic became part of our daily lives. So from all of your perspectives, what factors contributed to the family doctor shortage in Alberta prior to COVID? So I'm just going to open the floor to all of you so we can listen in on what I know will be a fantastic conversation around the time from before. I mean, going way back, so uh, when I came 2008, it was because we were facing a, a, a large shortage, uh, urban and rural. And there were a lot of work done at both medical schools and with uh, Alberta College of Physicians and with the uh, Ministry of Health and so on to try to improve things, stabilize things for the primary care networks and so on. And so we were, just before the pandemic, things had you know, continued to improve. For sure, we still had areas where there were shortages of doctors and and different types and uh, long-term care was a bit stressed. I remember back then sometimes struggling to find uh, either coverage or, or have folks uh, join us, but we, were, we weren't terribly bad off. There was room for improvement, uh, but there had been a continual increased trajectory. The challenge we kept facing a growing population and making sure that we were we keeping up with that growing population as well as filling in the gaps where people were. And certainly rural Alberta still was facing significant gaps just up until pre-pandemic. I don't know what everybody else feels. Uh, yeah, I would agree. I would say that, um, you know, of course, I'm not a family physician, I'm an internist, but uh, one of the things that we noticed in our clinic and also in the hospital is that, as you mentioned, David, a growing population, an aging population that's living longer um, with more chronic disease. And so I think even though we were probably just doing enough to have enough family physicians, and I would probably argue we were short before we uh, got into this pandemic, we were dealing with much more complexity than probably 10 or 15 years ago. So the average patient that a family doctor was seeing, instead of taking 15 or 20 minutes, could take 30 to 45 minutes. And that was already prior to COVID before all the mental health that we're seeing now. So I think um, we were already in a position where complexity was different. We were barely making ends meet with the number of family physicians that we needed in the urban centers and certainly in the rural centers, probably already in a dire state. Uh, and so I think moving into the pandemic, we were already behind the eight ball. You're right. I, I don't know how I forgot that. Right. The, the average complexity of a patient was growing. You're absolutely right. McCarum. And then uh, what, what we need to remember is that as soon as UCP came in, they had ripped the contract with physicians apart and they were pushing for private health care. 
um, uh, our premier Jason Kenney and then Health Minister um, uh, Tyler Shandro had raged a war against uh, uh, um, uh, against public health care and in, in particular family physicians. The contract was ripped apart. The billing was completely changed. So going into the pandemic, the doctor were fatigued, not knowing where the billing would be because every family clinic is a small business in itself. They have to pay the lease. They have to pay the uh, their staff, the salaries, benefits, and, and kind of maintain the lights and buy all the equipment that's in, in the clinic. So going into the pandemic, we were fatigued trying to uh, fighting the the, the the administration, in particular UCP, um, the government had made doctors as villains that they're not genuine, they're taking more money, not delivering uh, quality services. And that was repeated again and again. And so that had created animosity between people, uh, Albertans and their family physicians. We What we did find that patients were angrier, they were not trusting family physicians uh, and and doctors started to leave. That was pre-pandemic. Uh, those who could retire had gone into retirement. People who could have moved to different provinces have moved. There were more people in, in planning to move. So to start with, we had issues um, and people were fatigued. When the pandemic hit, we all had to maintain our clinics, but we went online for a few weeks to a few months. And at that time, the government, instead of supporting family doctors and help them in, in, in doing um, online healthcare, they went out and supported telehealth. And until today, the the remuneration for a call that we do, uh, telehealth doctors are paid double as administration fees as well. So in essence, it's difficult to maintain a family clinic. That's why we see clinics are being closed and doctors are leaving. To, to myself, my, my patient made a comment the other day, the doctor said, you don't joke anymore, you don't you don't make jokes and you don't laugh, you're more serious. I'm like, buddy, for, for the last many months, every morning I wake up, I'm thinking to close my clinic. And I know I can't maintain the lease payments I'm doing if this goes forward the way it's going forward. So not knowing that I can maintain the service is, is a huge concern to me, right? And then, uh, as as we know that more doctors are leaving, so to provide quality care to my patients, I'm seeing a lot of walk-ins as well, as well as there are a lot of uh, uh, patients that are coming from meeting. So our system was exhausted. Doctors were tired of fighting. Plus the COVID uh, uh, happened and it didn't help the family physicians and the government didn't support us. So we are doing our best. And I think more I, I speak to my fellow colleagues, they are planning to leave. And, and a lot of them have left and a lot of them are planning to leave as well. And I, I think you're completely right. And that was right. Bill 21, that ensures fiscal sustainability act. And, uh, and most of those billing changes, most of those uh, changes that were actually implemented in that bill haven't been uh, reversed. They've basically been put on hold because of COVID. And so people know that um, at the end of this pandemic, um, some of the things that they stand to lose are exactly their ability to provide uh, services within their clinics. And that's when we started hearing over and over again that 
family friends were leaving. Um, doctors warned this government and this government continuously uh, denied those claims. They continuously uh, indicated that we had more doctors we could get sick at and, and that it's in, in, in a lot of ways it has been uh, re, uh, re, um, hiring and retain, uh, retaining doctors has always been an issue. There's always been all kinds of put in place, you know, communities do their own uh, hiring and, and promote their own communities so that they can get uh, rural doctors out in those communities. But what this government has not helped at all uh, in terms of uh, uh, allowing doctors to have faith uh, in, in this government or in the leadership of AHS that they, they will be supported as, as they provide uh, the the most important part of our healthcare system, which is the uh, uh, primary care, which is that is the first place uh, for people to go. You know, when you're going to be talking about sustainability and and uh, and the need to cut costs and everything else as we're coming out of this pandemic, the concern that we have is that this should be the the first place that a government invests in so that we can actually uh, lower the costs upstream when it comes to um, you know, the, the ensuring that we we save money with ER costs, that we have uh, patients that have their chronic illnesses managed in a way that they are safe, you know, that they monitor health. There's so many um, important issues that primary care physicians uh, deal with on a daily basis that um, this war cannot continue. And, uh, and I think it's going to be something that everybody has to watch out for. Thank you all so very much. I know that we could keep talking about the before time for the next six um, sessions of Pop Alberta, um, but in the interest of moving us through all um, four little breakdown components of this conversation, um, I wanted to pick up on something that came up momentarily, which was the transition, this massive shift into virtual care um, that came obviously before with things like telehealth, but also the need for it, that sudden urgent need for it as we hit the beginning and the middle of COVID. So what if we unpack a little bit that first, second, and third waves um, where we witness that massive shift to virtual care and care avoidance as well by so many Albertans and as family physicians, um, I know that I access my family physician regularly when I'm not feeling great, but I definitely did not during the beginning of the pandemic, which I know led to things sometimes turning out not as well as they would have had I. Um, so yeah, so from that practitioner side of things, what was that experience like during the first, second, and third? So it was an, a, a, a paradigm shift for family doctors. The way we were trained, hands-on, seeing patient in person, watching the body cues, understanding the patient to go on, on a telephone or have video conferencing. And it, 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 it took some time to get used to it. And, and, and for the best part of it, I think that we were able to continue providing care to our patients. Since we knew the patient ongoing, we, we kind of knew what their fears were, uh, 
whether the blood pressure was higher due to anxiety or do we need to do a medication change for now or kind of follow it. Uh, so I think for, for my perspective, seeing my own patients, I was able to provide uh, care to them over the phone. Uh, the, the video conferencing was really tricky because they didn't, most of the patients didn't know how to use the camera. The lightning in the room was not sufficient. They were pointing towards the carpet or the chair instead of the, the body part we were trying to examine. So th that part was really uh, challenging. And then, you know, as, as we all know that, that our every decision we make, uh, whether small or big, it impacts your life. To tell a patient that you, that mole on the body is benign, don't worry about it, or it's not a melanoma, or what we are seeing is a mild infection, we don't need an all antibiotic. It, it was a lot of risk taking, but we did our best. And, and at times when we wanted to see a patient, we had called it in. So f uh, first uh, wave, it was online. And I think after that, we started uh, seeing patients more and more in the clinic. So, you know, with my background as a rural family doc, uh, I was quite, you know, doing virtual care was kind of like built into some of my past and stuff. Um, the key trick went during, say, the first wave was we definitely did see less patients coming in person. We did far more virtually than we did before. Um, and though we were also dealing and fielding a lot of the questions about COVID itself. And so even though we might have had less patients coming for kind of like routine kind of things or the, the random numbers of people who might uh, have various new issues of difficulty breathing or whatever, we were also dealing with so we might have had less of those kinds of patients, but we had now lots more sort of questions and also managing the actual COVID patients. And particularly as the second wave and the third wave, uh, family docs, a lot of people aren't uh, aware unless they were connected in this way, uh, family docs were actually directly calling. I was calling my patients every one, every 24 hours, every 48 hours, or uh, maybe every few days, depending on their risk profile, if a patient had COVID. So during that time cycle, we were now taking on management of COVID patients, which is appropriate and it's, it's a pandemic. It would have been great if, you know, we had good public health measures that prevented the second and third and fourth waves, which because we knew that these waves were coming and they there could have been good measures, but there weren't. But oh well. Um, the challenge, though, what I really find troubling, I'm not fee for service. I happen to work in a different way. But the vast majority of family doctors in Alberta are fee for service. The government has... The government has data research that shows when family doctors spend extra time with patients, those patients are less likely to get really sick, less likely to show up in the emergency room. And for every dollar they spend on, on a family doctor who spends more time with a patient, the government saves about $3 in that same financial year. So the government has that research, knows this research. And yet when the shift to virtual in a big way happened, the government failed to create any mechanisms to, to compensate family docs and other doctors who were providing complex care over the phone. I mean, some of the things I was doing and my colleagues were doing were goals of care discussions lasting an hour, an hour and a half. Fee for service, that'd be approximately 30 bucks. You, and so here are clinics trying to provide care, providing great care that's patient-centered, improves patient outcomes, improves patient's quality, it resolves confusion. It's very much beneficial for the patient and saves the government money. And our government still, and still to this day, will not pay for complex virtual care. And I, I just don't understand that. I don't understand 
It's going to save the money. It's going to make things better for the patient and decrease healthcare utilization. And they're still not paying for it. What's the outcome? The outcome are people, you know, laying off staff, having to cut down their practices, not renewing their lease. And yes, we've seen some people leaving now. Nobody leaves a place in a hurry. The, the impact of this is going to be over the next year to two years when we see lots of people leaving and every Canadian physician out there knows the story in Alberta that the Alberta government refuses to acknowledge the research their own, you know, that they have that shows that complex care by family docs is not only worthwhile, but it saves them money. And yet the government seems to be making financial decisions that are hurting practices that are appear to be either deliberately or unintentionally or but with full awareness are undermining family medicine care and access by Albertans to family docs. Now, to be clear, these are my opinions. They're not the opinions of, uh, of either the health institution or the university institution I work with, but the government has the data and still is not paying for complex care, which is hurting Albertans access to the care they need. And I'm a, I'm a patient. I was public on Twitter. I, I would have, my family doc through complex care saved my life. That's how important spending extra time with the patient is. He spent extra time with me, found out that I had uh, probably had blood clots, and within a few hours, I was taken care of. Complex care saves lives, is better patient care, and our government knows it and still won't pay for it. It's crazy. I don't understand it. I, I was just going to quickly... Very clearly to the direction. So... Go ahead, Sandra. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say that um, that it kind of speaks clearly to the direction. I, I mean, it, it, for a person that wants to be physically fiscally responsible, um, they're not very good at showing uh, their their um, their numbers. And and so when when they introduced uh, Talus Babylon Health, um, it it was clear that not interested in finding a public platform or, or even supporting the work that doctors had been doing uh, even prior to uh, to the pandemic because there was a lot of rural doctors that were using virtual platforms. Uh, Babylon Health, Telus Health is a third party platform um, where we don't know uh, as a third party platform how or not the the, the data that is taken um, from, from people that buy into their services. And now they're offering all kinds of online services from mental health to youth recovery uh, and, and supporting, um, you know, that corporate type of, of, uh, of privatization in terms of what services will be provided. And, and, and I think it's, it's insidious in, in, in that how this government actually implemented when it, it brought in uh, TELUS and and the fact that the commissioner has issues with it, yet we to fund uh, TELUS Health, uh, regardless of the fact that, you know, that uh, that there's issues with it, privacy issues, um, and this government doesn't, so you're right. I mean, it's it's not a, um, I think we from from their actions, their uh, government that is very set in their path to privatize public, and they'll do it in an insidious way. And that that 
Um, okay, I will I will quickly jump in here. Sorry, Sandra, I'm not sure if I'm cutting you off or not. You're frozen on my screen here. Um, but I wanted to just, you know, talk about the first couple of waves and how it's trans transitioning now for individual clinics. So we have to remember when COVID first started in March 2020, I think physicians and patients alike were scared. We didn't know what we were going to be seeing. None of us knew this disease. None of us knew uh, what to expect. And so we quickly shut everything down. Our college recommended that we go virtual. And I think we all kind of did our best to do so. And, and I think as physicians, we realized quickly that virtual care, while very useful for certain things and for, for minor conditions, it was really challenging after the first month. You know, we started, I started to have lots of patients that I called once every four weeks and they kept calling about their abdominal pain, but I couldn't examine them. And there was only so much that I could do over the phone. And, and to what uh, Dr. Zadie said, you know, a lot of them don't know how to use um, Zoom or video platforms. And, and for me, privacy is a very, very big deal. So I didn't want pictures emailed to me. I didn't want anything um, that could be hacked or shared uh, widely to be sent. And so it was very challenging. And so we as a clinic decided fairly early on to actually move back into, you know, kind of a 50-50 model where we would do in person, we would stagger it with virtual. But then we realized we needed PPE. We needed a lot of um, uh, safety measures in place. We needed, at the time, we thought we needed plexiglass everywhere. You know, we were still learning a little bit about COVID and its transmission. Uh, and so we had to do a lot of infrastructure changing to how we ran our clinic. We had to have lots of signage. There was one point we would call people in from the family, from the parking lot, which would require a whole other set of infrastructure and overhead. Um, and as we, as alluded to, we weren't getting compensated for the virtual care as we needed to. And so in our clinic, we had to lay off many staff to be able to just keep going. Um, and then quickly, as the first wave ended, all of a sudden people needed to come back in and now I didn't have the staff, I didn't have the proper um, support in place to deal with the volume of people that are coming in, we were still very scared of COVID, we didn't know how to screen properly. Um, but we had to quickly adapt. And then the second wave came and again, we went back to virtual and so the, the continuous transition back and forth between virtual and person it's very challenging on everybody, both patients, physicians, staff. There's a lot of unpredictability. I would say at this point, we kind of know how to do things well. And for the most part, we do everything in person as we can. Um, but I, I think that the, the fallout from that is an anxiety that both patients, physicians, and staff all feel because we don't know what's going to come next. Thank you all so very much for your thoughts on that. I'm going to bring Dr. Vipondin back into our conversation as well to speak from an emergency room perspective on this next component. So what about now? So we've seen the worst, most intentionally cruel rate wave. We have watched you, Dr. Bakshi, go through the last um, three months just completely and totally run off your feet and completely consumed by your hospital practice, let alone your um, private practice. What, what is the now like for all of you? How, how many patients are you managing to see? What is that looking like? Um, yeah. Maybe I'll start. go ahead. So as it was said rightly, so now we had to adopt. So, so clinics like myself put thousands of dollars on, on virtual care platforms to develop ourselves because it wasn't given by the government. So that was the first thing that we paid for. Then we had extra. We had to buy extra services to send text messages to staff, to patients to see out in the car and when they can come in 
staff would go out. I know there are a lot of doctors whose clinics were broken. Uh, pe people threw stones at them uh, and they didn't report that. Uh, the patients have been very aggressive to wait outside and that has not been reported. And then uh, we had to put the screens or put a glass in front of, uh, of our counters at thousands of dollars again. But then we had to provide masks, face shield, gloves, wipe the entire room, hire extra staff to clean entire room, make sure that the waiting area does not have more than three to five patients, which are six feet apart. There, there was a lot of money that is being spent by family doctors or, or, or clinics to make sure that the environment the patient comes in is safe and and we have the least germs possible over there. But doing all that has been putting a lot of stress on the staff as well as, as the administration and, and the MDs. Uh, at, at my clinic, we are seeing maximum number of patients that we can provide care of. After I finish my inpatient, then I start seeing walk-in patients too at least help the system not so that if I don't see the patient, that patient will end up in the hospital. So myself, I'm seeing 50 patients a day plus phone calls. And, and I feel that it's, it's taken a lot of toll on my mental health and myself as well. But that, and, but I'm, I'm, I'm not the only one doing it. A lot of my friends are doing the same to help the system. Thank you. So when this, I, I've been in Alberta since 2008. This right now is the worst, most stressed I've seen family medicine in the entire time I've lived in Alberta. What's happening now is there's a, first of all, there is a shortage of doctors. People are leaving and retiring and scaling down and cutting back their practice and so on. There's now lots of patients who are seeking to get a replacement family doctor. So there's all these extra questions we're fielding every day about, can you take on this patient? Can you take on that patient? And a lot of patients had held off on different things. And now they not only have say several issues, like two, three, four, five, six issues uh, when they do come in, but many of those issues have now been allowed to go on and on. So what might've been a minor uh, tendon strain has now turned into a very complex tendon injury that needs a lot more intensive assessment, more time to examine them and to set them up with the you know, different kinds of therapy and so on. So the complexity of the average patient is about threefold what it was before the pandemic. You know, every, I think I have one clinic and, you know, only a half hour late in the last four months. Uh, usually I'm an hour and a half, two hours behind, and I still have to write all my notes and check all my labs and x-rays that night because I never had a chance to get to them. And, and it's not just me. Every single family doctor I have talked to is exhausted. People who have always been the ones to always be happy and show, you know, showing up for work or whatever, they're exhausted. The complexity and the challenges of with surgical delays and so on, managing patients while we're waiting for them to be seen and have their procedures, that's complex. And there's all the extra questions people have about COVID and vaccines and all those extra long-term disability uh, which was preventable, the entire second, third wave and fourth wave disabilities that have patients have uh, uh, had to take on, they were all, almost all of them were completely preventable. We're now managing those patients. So we have extra clinical scenarios we're trying to manage. Family medicine is, is crumbling. It's not that it's going to crumble, it is crumbling. The question is how fast will it crumble? And I think it's gonna be in about a year, in the next year,
But right now already, people are are stressed, burnt out, like I have never seen it in Alberta ever before. And this is really, really, really bad. And who, in their right mind, physician elsewhere in Canada, would come here when they know there's these decisions that are being made where COVID is still not being acknowledged to be airborne, when all the research is incredibly clear, COVID is airborne, where you know, it's just in, when there's still no good complex care remuneration for family doctors who provide complex care and so on. Why would somebody come here? So we're, we're losing doctors. People are gradually, attri there's attrition. No, very few people are coming. Uh, it's only about a year before there's a massive crisis, but really there's a crisis here now. It's just that it's not incredibly visible, but it will be because family doctors are gonna get sick family docs are gonna start dying and having to take leave and so on. Um, it's a very serious situation. And unfortunately it's hundred percent preventable. The good news is the government could fix things starting tomorrow, but we've been saying that for a year and a half. Yeah, you know, and I, I alluded to this in a, in a tweet I posted a couple of days ago. Um, you know, one, one thing we have to realize is that healthcare system, inpatient, outpatient is one big cycle everything affects everything. And so, you know, we focused a lot on ICU capacity as we should have when it comes to critical illness and, and COVID and those kinds of things. But if we look at what happened in this wave alone, so we had 15,000 plus, probably plus at this point, surgeries postponed or canceled. And in the entire three waves prior to this, 30,000. So you can imagine how dire this wave has been. And we've not caught up from the past three waves. Um, so, so we're at a point now where ICU numbers are going down, inpatient hospitalizations are going down ever so slowly uh, as compared to other waves. But other diagnoses, so non-COVID crisis, so cancers and heart failure and, and uh, chronic pain and abdominal pain and vomiting, things that normally would have come into hospital, patients were waiting. In every wave we saw this, they would not either seek out care from their family doctor or they would not go to the emergency room because of fear, because of, you know, the messaging of don't go anywhere. And so now all of those patients are coming into the hospital and all of our internal medicine, which is the primary care of the hospital, is overflowing. We are at 80, 90, 100% over capacity, over capacity. So, you know, almost double what we normally see. And we don't have the, the resources to manage these patients through their whole illness. So what do we do? Well, when they're just getting better, we discharge them because we need that space. And who do we discharge them to? Well, we hope and pray that they have a family physician but, uh, you know, kind of ignorantly, I think we all write follow up with family physician in one to two weeks when we know that that is that is not actually feasible. That's not realistic, especially in a crisis time right now where family physicians are booking two, three, four five weeks out because of the, the amount of volume that they're seeing. And that's if they have a family doctor. Now, a lot of patients in Alberta now at this point do not have family doctors. So now what happens to them? Well, as an internal medicine specialist or maybe a GI or cardiologist, we say, okay, we'll see you in our clinic. And so I bring these patients to my clinic, but I'm not set up from an infrastructure way to see patients like a family physician can because I have hospital duties as well. So now these patients who are used to seeing a family doctor or maybe need a family doctor in that continuing care are left seeing me who can see them maybe every six to eight weeks, but really they need intervention every three to four weeks. And so in between, they're having to go back to the emergency room, which was already overloaded. And so we're back into this vicious cycle where 
We are only doing Band-Aid care. We're doing reactive care. Preventative care is not prioritized by this government, it is not funded by this government. And as, as Dr. Keegan and, and Dr. Zadie alluded to, preventative care saves money. Uh, and unfortunately, we're still in this very, very reactionary phase. And if we don't get out of this, it will just continue until more and more patients die. And then if we talk about physicians, physicians are burnt out. I've been very open about my own mental health and my own PTSD. And any counselor would tell me that my job is to take some time off or to take some time away. But we all have professional ethics. And there's this piece of being a healthcare worker and being a physician that we just can't stop to our own detriment. And we continue to add time. We add more hours to our day, our weekends, our evenings, our nights. And it's not sustainable. We know that. And so, as Dr. Keegan said, we're a year away from crisis. I think we're probably three to six months away from a mass exodus. I would like to move us into our final convert, our final um, topic with Sandra starting us off. Um, Sandra, this was a really challenging, sad one for me. And I'm aware of the issues in our primary care system. Um, but there were a number of moments where I was reminded that I am really afraid going forward. Um, so as an advocate, as someone who has been working so hard in this province for so long to help not let some of these realities become the long-term reality, not let some of the forecasting of what this next year could do to our primary care practices become what we are living with and living in. What's what's the next? How, how do we as Albertans help get out of this crisis? That's a really good question. I, you know, I, I think groups like uh, Protect Our Province are a perfect example how uh, basically grassroots advocacy can come together in such a short time and and provide such a such leadership at a time when when our government was basically derelict of their responsibility and decided to go away uh, on holidays and uh, um, and so. This is just one example. Um, we advocacy, and um, it's it's a it's an ungrateful kind of a job, in, in that um, sometimes you feel alone. But when it comes to protecting public health care and repairing the damage that was done to our public health care, and the continuation of this government's path towards undermining uh, a system that's already overstretched. Uh, under-resourced and understaffed. Um, it's going to take all of us to stand up uh, against this. It's going to take all of us to gain some kind of strength from, from understanding that if we don't stand up um, now, we stand to lose one of the most precious and important things that we have in, in our lives and in our and it's our society. Um, so I think in a lot of ways, people um, get re-energized when they have to think about what potentially we can lose. And, and so the next couple of months, I think this legislative sitting has been a, a sitting where we have seen bills that basically pretend to do things and, and actually don't. But in the next coming uh, year, when we see a budget coming down that's going to be calling for fiscal reckoning, and we're already seeing the narrative coming from, from the government that our public health care system is unsustainable, is when we're going to need all of us to stand 
it's worth saving and to be a, a step back and reassessment of how it is that we can uh, provide some of those uh, solutions as Dr. Q was Keegan was talking about that some of these things can be implemented now. Um, and uh, in the long term, it's, it's going to take uh, a lot more um, policies and legislation that actually uh, support the values that created our system to begin with. And, and, and that's equity and an egalitarian system that's there for everybody based on need and not ability to pay. And that's what we need to keep on fighting for. Does anyone else have any other thoughts on what those going forwards can be? Um, I know as an Albertan and as a Canadian, two of the things that I have always been most proud of are, are is our public health care system and our ability to stand up when push comes to shove um, to make sure that that access remains. So on those going forward notes, does anybody else have anything they'd like to add? So I think there needs to be a very honest conversation between MDs or AMA and our government and, and need to know whether the government wants to move into the direction of private healthcare. It has been happening on a smaller level, uh, but the way we see it as, as a family doc myself that the government is trying to move towards more privatized healthcare and less public funding for public healthcare and less support for primary care physicians. So that the day when when you when you see as a health, as a taxpayer that you can't see a family doctor for two to three weeks, you go to emerge, you can't see a specialist for for months, and your surgery is months down the line. Then the value of our healthcare system decreases, and these people who are rich enough will go to private healthcare. So by the government actions that we have been talking about for months and over two years now, is we, we are the government is taking steps to decrease the value of primary healthcare and public healthcare. And they're making it a way that people would like to grow, go into, uh, into private healthcare. Um, and, and that's where I fear that the, the direction that the government is taking will go further in that step and more and more doctors would leave. So. The solution has to be that a clear path forward where there is a contract with AMA, which clearly looks at the interest of uh, primary health care and, and, our, and our healthcare system in which we can sustain the clinics. Thank you. And to be clear, like I, I grew up poor. You know, there's no way I would have been able to afford, you know, these private healthcare things. If private healthcare is not freedom and choice, it's it's, you know, keeping people indentured. It's keeping it's taking money out of our economy and putting it to a few chosen people. That's what private healthcare is. It's theft. It's robbery. It's knowingly holding back the majority of our population. It's Alberta is supposed to be a place where people can come and thrive. It's instead private healthcare will turn Alberta into a place that's more expensive for employers because they're going to have to pay for partial, you know, insurances and stuff. And it's going to be a place where people actually can thrive. You know, I think to myself, like I, 
I've got a good job. I love my job. Man, if I was working minimum wage with the medical conditions that I've got now, I'd be gone. Like there's, I, I could never afford it. There's, there'd be no way. And like, and then you throw on top of that a private healthcare system, impossible. So private healthcare is nothing about freedom. It's nothing about choice, except for a deliberate choice to keep people poor. That's all it is. Um, maybe I'll just uh, step in um, and just mention that I actually got rid of my TELUS account. Uh, I was so angry at Babylon. I just said, I, I don't want to support this company um, and I don't want to support private health care. So I am uh, so uh, thankful for all the statements about that and that Sandra Azokar and her organization exists on the planet because I just think it's so important that uh, we support our Medicare system. Um, I also want to just mention a little bit about the relationship between family medicine and, and the emergency room. We are so dependent on good family medicine care in order to do our jobs in the eMERGE. You can imagine situations where patients have lost their family doctor um, and actually start to rely on the emergency room as a, as a one-stop shop for their family care needs. And that's not appropriate. It's not appropriate for a couple of things. First of all, um, I'm sure I don't have to tell the family doctors on this call that, that um, uh, eMERGE docs are not good family doctors. We're just not. It's, it's a totally different um, way of doing medicine. I'm good at broken bones. I'm good at crushing acute chest pain. I'm not good at, uh, you know, I've been losing weight for, for three weeks or, um, you know, I've got this strange growth on my back um, and, or I've, I've got a long-term mental health issue. Uh, we're not good at it because we're not trained at it. We don't see it all the time. And we're not good at it because um, we, uh, we only ever get to see a snapshot. And one of the things that makes uh, family medicine different from a lot of other medicine is that relationship that builds up over time where the, the family doctor gets to, to know that, that patient well uh, and says, you know, this isn't um, Ralph just being... Uh, paranoid. This is something different. This is not his normal behavior. Whereas when I see them, you know, it's a one-off. I have no idea who the inner Ralph really is. Is this is 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 he having a, an emotional issue or is he having a heart attack? Um, so, if we are going to keep our healthcare system functional, including emergency medicine, we need we need to support family practice. Um, it's it's. I don't think I'm speaking out of line in saying that there's good evidence that shows that a strong family medicine system leads to good health outcomes uh, and, and strongly related. So um, we can't lose that. We can't lose that. Emer emergency medicine, walk-in clinics, they are not the same thing. So um, I'll just finish up with that. Thank you all so very much for joining us. As always, this topic is too large to discuss in an hour, and it seems to me that we need to keep unpacking it to sustain our access to public health care going forward. 
Thank you all again for taking the time to be with us, our panelists, and those of you at home. We will see you next week. Um, we are hoping to have a look at the provincial EMS challenges. So if you or someone in your circle has been impacted by ambulance service interruptions, wait times, or if you work within that emergency responder community, please feel free to reach out if you would like to share some of your experience either on a panel or via a written story slash statement. And if you don't already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and or to the podcast on the service of your choice. Not only will this allow you to receive scheduling updates and reminders, but apparently subscribers are good for us to have. Um, at least that's what the technical people tell me. So until next time, stay safe, Alberta. As always, remember COVID-19 is airborne. We're the best mask you have access to and vaccines really do save lives.